And sadly, I, I believe we're seeing a similar thing attempting to take place here in the United States today where there is an attack against the Judeo-Christian society, the principles that our nation was founded upon, an attack against the U.S. Constitution, an erasing of our founding fathers, the tearing down of statues, the rewriting of history. And they're doing it on purpose because they desire a different future for the United States than what was set up by our founding fathers. Welcome to The Cleansing Word. We invite you to stay with us as Pastor John Pinnell of Calvary Chapel Lake Villa takes us through a verse-by-verse study from God's Word. Each Monday through Friday, we'll be airing messages to encourage you in your faith that you might grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you enjoy this broadcast, and I'll return at the close of this teaching to give you more information about our church and how you can obtain a copy of this message. Now here's Pastor John with today's message from God's Word. So tonight we're beginning the book of Exodus and we're going to be looking at chapters 1 and 2 in the book of Exodus and learning about Moses and the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and heading toward the promised land. And we have the author of the book of Exodus, which is also believed to be Moses, who authored this book, accounting the events that took place in his own life and the children of Israel as well. He kind of catches us up from the end of Genesis into the preparation for the Exodus. A lot of years had went by. And we will find as we go through the book of Exodus that they would actually depart from the land of Egypt 430 years to the day. From the day that they entered in, on that same day they went out. And so a lot of years had went by. And we discover that Joseph is no longer remembered. And I found this very interesting, largely because of what we see going on in our own nation today. So let's go ahead and just get into the text and learn from God's word tonight. So we read in Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we're going to go through 1 through verse 7, where it tells us, Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came out of Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zubalin, all these being the sons of Leah, of course the sons of Jacob, but by his wife Leah. I threw the Leah one in there. Then next he lists Benjamin, which was the son of Rachel, And also we know that Joseph was one of the sons 
of Rachel and Jacob as well. But in a moment, we'll read that Joseph's already in the land, so he wasn't counted in this list. And then Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid, and finally Gad and Asher, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's handmaid. And all those, verse 5, all those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. So the book of Exodus, actually in the Hebrew, it's called the book of the names. It takes its title from the very first words of verse one here in chapter one. Now these are the names, so the book of the names. But here we have this accounting of the children of Israel coming to live in the land of Egypt and Joseph inviting his family, if you recall, telling his family, go get dad, go get the family because you've already had come down to Egypt because of the famine and there's only two of the seven years have passed at this point. There's five more years of severe famine, so famine coming to this area. So go get the family, bring them to Egypt. We will take care of them. But we learned as we closed out the book of Genesis that as Jacob began to make his way to Egypt, he had to make a pit stop at Bethel. He had to make a pit stop at the house of God because there at Bethel, the Lord confirmed to Jacob that it was okay to go down to Egypt, and God actually promised that he'd not only bring them down, but he would bring them back up again. But while they were in Egypt, he would make them a great nation. And so it wasn't just a, a family invitation, Joseph saying, come on down, it's great here in Egypt, we'll do well. It was not only the invitation, but God's prophetic word that Jacob had to hear from the Lord that it was right for him and his family to go down to Egypt. And so they received that word from the Lord. They relocated to Egypt. And in answer to Joseph's invitation, but also in obedience to the word of God, Jacob, his 11 sons, along with their households, 70 persons in all came into the land of Egypt. But as time passed, verse 7, Joseph, his brothers, all that generation died, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now God had promised Jacob at Bethel, at the house of God, that's what Bethel means. God had promised Jacob these words, I am God, the God of your father, do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will surely bring you up again, and Joseph will put his hands on your eyes. And God was with Jacob, his family, as they went down to Egypt, and God allowed Joseph to put his hands on his father's eyes, just simply saying that when Jacob died some 17 years later, Joseph was there at his bedside 
and was the one that actually closed his father's eyes as he passed from this life into everlasting life. Now God was also growing them into a great nation as he promised he would do. And so he not only grew them to a great nation at this point, but he said, I will bring them up again. And he's about ready to act, to bring them up from Egypt to the promised land. Now, here in this account in verse 7, it said the land was filled with the Israelis and God had uniquely kept the Israelites from assimilating with the people of Egypt. It's pretty amazing. They had been there for 400 years and yet they did not, in a large part, we say, might say, maybe in a small part they did, but for the most part, they did not assimilate in the land. They didn't intermarry with the Egyptians. But this was something that God had arranged back in Genesis 46. We learned that when Joseph's family came to live in Egypt, Joseph encouraged his brothers to say to the Pharaoh that we are all shepherds. And in Genesis 46, 34, the word tells us that the Egyptians saw that shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. They could not stand shepherds. And so this allowed the children of Israel to remain in Goshen, separated from the Egyptians. And this odd Egyptian custom was used by God to keep Israel's descendants pure without assimilating into the nation of Egypt. They maintained a separate people group within the land for the next 430 years, as I had said. Because by the time we read of the first census that's found in the book of Numbers chapter 1, we are told as they sum up the census, counting all the men who were able to go to war, those who were 20 years old and above, that there were 603,550 people. So over 600,000 men able to go to war from 20 years old and above. So they had grown into a, a great multitude of people. Some figure, if you add children in there and the wives, that maybe we had 2 million people who would come out of Egypt during the Exodus. So in verses 8 through 14, we find that there was a forgetting of Joseph. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the events of a war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens and they built for Pharaoh the supply cities of Pitom and Ramses. And the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were uh, in dread of the children of Israel. So Moses doesn't say how many years had passed from the time that Joseph brought his family down to Egypt and they began to afflict the Israelis. Some believe that maybe a hundred years had went by. He did say that that whole generation had gone. 
So Joseph and his brothers were no more. And some time after that, a new king arose. And some believe that this forgetting of Joseph's salvation of the Egyptian people began happening after they had been in the land for around 100 years. The author of 1984, George Orwell, had once said the most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history. And here we find a situation where there was a new king that rose up in Egypt and he did not know Joseph. There was a a denying, a destroying of the history. How could he not know Joseph? Somebody had been erasing. There was a, he's still living to this day, a pro-communist born in Czech Republic. He had said these words and he's for communism. The first step in liquidating a people is to erase its memory, destroy its books, its culture, its history, then have somebody write new books, manufacture a new culture, invent a new history. Before long, that nation will begin to forget what it is and what it was. The struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. And sadly, I I believe we're seeing a similar thing attempting to take place here in the United States today where there is an attack against the Judeo-Christian society, the principles that our nation was founded upon, an attack against the U.S. Constitution, an erasing of our founding fathers, the tearing down of statues, the rewriting of history. And they're doing it on purpose because they desire a different future for the United States than what was set up by our founding fathers. So it was in Israel. All that the new king knew was that the children of Israel, they were more and mightier than the Egyptians. And so he saw them as a problem. Therefore, he he counseled with his people that they should deal shrewdly with Israel, lest it would happen that Israel would multiply If there was a war, Israel would fight with the enemies of Egypt. And then notice in verse 10, and so go up out of the land. They had grown accustomed to the labor of Israel, the slavery of the Israelites there in the land of Egypt. Yet the more they afflicted them, God did something that seemed very odd. And the word of God tells us the more they afflicted Israel, the more God blessed them, caused them to multiply and grow. And soon Israel's numbers increased. So did the dread of the Egyptians regarding the children of Israel. They so dreaded the growth of the children of Israel in their land, the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. He made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor, verses 12 through 14. Now, 
I believe God was using the hard labor, the rigor. God was teaching the children of Israel skills that they might not have had to learn if it had not been forced upon them to do so. But he was also preparing an army that they would, when they go out of the land of Egypt, that they would be a strong army, able to defend their own families and to fight the Lord's battle there in the promised land. Now, regarding the dating of the book of Exodus, there are two main theories. I'm going to read two of those theories to you. And uh, they're really uh, vary by a couple of hundred years, actually. And this is from gotquestions.com. Although the new king in verse 8 was never named, it is widely believed to be Ramses II, who ruled approximately during the years 1290 to 1224 BCE. The Bible is quite specific about the site of their enslavement, the two cities that they had mentioned. The first city that they mentioned, Pithom, is believed to be the Hebrew pronunciation of the word Per Atum, or the house of Atum, the god of the setting sun. And Ramses, presumed to be named after the city, named after the pharaoh that ruled over them. Um, I read other people who go against this, saying that the timeline doesn't fit as they're trying to make it fit here from gotquestions.com. But another Bible knowledge commentary has us with Amenhotep II from 450 to 425 BC, and that being the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And he seemed to have suffered a very great military reversal. He was unable to carry out extensive military campaigns. His weak war efforts may have resulted from, here's what they say, and this is coming from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. His weak war efforts may have resulted from the loss of all or most of his chariots in the Red Sea. The so-called Dream Stella records that the god of Harmatuk told the young prince in a dream that someday he would be king, and therefore this statement kind of fits in with what is believed, not only the exodus of Egypt, but the entering in of the children of Israel into the land of Canaan. And I, I agree better with the uh, later date of the exodus. They are lining it up with the life of Abraham. And also we have Solomon building the temple and he dates the building of the temple by the exodus of the Israelis out of Egypt. And so it helps us kind of get a timeline of these things. But it is still debatable around a 200 year between the 14th or the 12th century. But no matter the exact time of the Exodus, when the works of good people are forgotten, tyranny often rises in its place. And so we find, as we continue verses 15 through 21, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Ziphrah and the other was Puah. 
And he said, when you do the duties of the midwife for the Hebrew women and you see them on their birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. So Pharaoh ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill all the baby boys as they were being birthed. They were to be immediately killed, but the Bible tells us, verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. The Hebrew word here for fear is yair, which means to fear, to be afraid of, or it can mean to revere. I like that. In other words, they stood in awe of God honored him above the commandments of men. We find in the New Testament that Peter and the other apostles were challenged in their day and age to obey God rather than men when they were told not to speak in the name of Jesus any longer. In Acts 5.29, the word of God tells us that Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And here in the Greek, that word for ought can refer to a moral necessity for our obedience, a moral necessity for our obedience. And so according to the word of God, we know that the word teaches that we are to be submissive to the governing authorities for the Lord's sake in order that we might bring glory to God. However, when the government turns against the commands of God, we, like Zifra or Pua, we have a moral obligation to obey God rather than men. So it was, verses 18 through 21, the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done these things and saved the male children alive? Why do I see so many and baby Hebrew boys running around. What's going on? And the midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiply and grew very greatly. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. So because they obeyed God rather than the commandment of the king. God provided households for the two midwives for their faithfulness to him. Father, you know that I, I love going through your word. I love the account given to us of Moses and the Exodus. And such great moments of faith being displayed. But also we learned tonight times when Moses' faith wasn't so great, when he actually ran instead of standing strong. But even in this, we understand through your word tonight, Lord, that he needed to run for a time, for a season, because there was more that you needed to teach him. He needed to become a shepherd, that he might shepherd your people. Lord, I don't know exactly where each of us might be in our lives tonight. We might be in the process of that learning period 
You have a plan for us that I believe and that I trust. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to be willing to learn, to look into your word, to grow in faith, that we might serve you in the day and age that you have placed us in. Lord, it is not a mistake that we live in this very hour that we find ourselves in, in a world, Lord, that is just confused. Lord, you have given us faith in Jesus. So help us to be a people of faith and to be a light to others around us. I pray for those, Lord, who are sick. Pray for those who are suffering. As we began tonight, Lord, with those who have recently passed away, some of the pastors in the Calvary Chapel movement, Lord, they've gone to be with you. Lord, I pray that you would be with those families and just bless them. Bless us, Lord. Be with our families as well. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Pray that God would bless you and keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. And may we have the excitement of those children down there. <laughs> Amen. Calvary Chapel is a fellowship of believers in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire is to know Christ and to be conformed into His image by the power of His Holy Spirit. If you would like more information about Calvary Chapel, or if you would like a copy of today's message, please contact us at 847-265-0646. That's 847-265-0646. Thank you so much for joining us today, and may the Lord richly bless you as you worship Him today. And let